Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy the discussion. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Alan B., Aaron M., Thomas P., Wally M., and Johnny R. Brandon Monroe has returned to the show today. Brandon is CEO of Bannerman Resources, a uranium development company advancing the Entango uranium project in Namibia, Southwest Africa. Bannerman is listed on the Australian Securities Exchange under the symbol BMN and also on the US OTC markets under the symbol BNNLF. Brandon, welcome back. How are you, sir? Um, well, thanks, Andrew. I really appreciate coming back on the show. I love what you're doing in the sector and the space, and it's a great privilege to be here. Well, what's going on in the broad uranium market here, Brandon, and how are you holding up with COVID? So, you know, I really see this market right now being absolutely loaded with potential. As we know, the price has formed a bit of a plateau. It's created what I think is a new base, circa $31, $32 a pound after spending the last couple of uh, seasons at a base around 25. So it's on a generally a positive trajectory, but I know there's investors out there that are quite disappointed that it hasn't moved in a more strident way. But the potential really fascinating right now. We've got uh, a large number of pounds already before we even started the year sitting in a deficit situation. Um, around 20 million pounds by my numbers, less than what's being consumed in the nuclear reactors around the world. Now, that's a, a structural deficit. So it's a deficit that exists, if you like, in a model or in a spreadsheet, when you add up how many pounds are being mined and how many pounds are being supplied from secondary supplies, and then you compare that with how many pounds are being consumed or burnt in reactors. So structural deficit running about 20 million pounds, and I'll talk for a moment how much worse that's become because of COVID-19 related issues. Um, but there, there hasn't really been a market deficit in the sense that the amount of uranium being bought in the market hasn't, hasn't had a, been much more than the amount of uranium being sold in the market. And that's been because of underbuying by the utilities. They've preferred to run down their inventories than cover their burn-up or their consumption. And so because of that, we've had a uranium price that's been fairly lackluster. We had a little bit of a move and now it's formed another base. So then what's happened, as anyone who's a uranium buff would know, is the two biggest production centres for uranium in the world were affected dramatically by COVID-19 related restrictions. So the largest uranium mine in the world, Cigar Lake, uh, went down for six months, into care and maintenance for six months, and Cameco, the operator there, are hoping that they'll have that back in production mid this month, although nothing's assured. And Kazakhstan, the dominant supplier of uranium into the world, with accounting for about 40% of, of the world's production of uranium, they went into minimal operations, meaning no well field development from April. And now they've announced that they will try and get back into full production or full operations 
by the end of this month. So we've got a 20 million pound deficit at the end of the year. That's been made worse by at least another 20 million pounds for 2020. And there's going to be a substantial hangover into 2021. So the reason I say this sector is loaded with potential, Andrew, is because when at a market level, the utilities stop underbuying, drawing on inventory, and start just buying what they're consuming, they'll find that the demand for uranium, particularly in the spot market, rapidly and demonstrably exceeds the available supply. And that's when we will inevitably see some price movements. That's on the, the shorter term view. On the medium to longer term view, we've got substantial uh, reductions in supply. There's a depletion curve in this sector, which is astonishing when you start to look at the numbers. And that really starts to bite from about 2024, 2025. Uh, starting from next year, Ranger, which is historically one of the biggest producing uranium mines in the world, stops production in January 2021. Comignac, uh, one of the largest mines in Niger, they stop production next year. And there's a number of other significant mines in Kazakhstan and elsewhere that will come offline over the next few years, including Cigar Lake, which runs out of ore in 2027-2028. With current pricing, there's very little production that can come on to fill that in. It just doesn't make sense at $32 with contracts being written perhaps in the early 40s. Uh, there's a few small producers who can make economic sense of that number. And then there's a number of developers that are hoping to come into the sector and get through their environmental permitting and all of that type of thing. But they all need far greater uranium prices to make commercial sense out of going through the process of financing, constructing, and then operating a mine. So that's why I say it's loaded with potential, and I'm in a really an excitable space at the moment, as you can tell. And Brandon, on the upcoming term contracting round, with COVID, the US elections, the Russian suspension agreement, when do you think that notable term volume will actually commence in the term market? So we're gonna need a bit of latency time for that, I believe. There are utilities doing a little bit at the moment, but many, if not most of the utilities right now, this just simply isn't their greatest priority, particularly when the uranium price has formed a little bit of a base in the low 30s. Um, on the nuclear power front, utilities are quite distracted by what they need to do, how they've needed to change their operating procedures because of COVID-related uh, restrictions, because of their own measures. A large number of plants in the US in this spring are doing reloads. Now look, a reload is a huge uh, undertaking. It involves a number of contractors. It tends to involve all of the discretionary staff at a nuclear power plant. And the difficulty factor with the reload now has gone up really quite dramatically because of all of the precautions that need to take place with COVID. Uh, and the other thing is a lot of those utilities, they operate other energy businesses. So because of COVID, you know, all's not well in gas, all's not well in coal. And for some people, they might imagine that a utility fuel buyers, you know, sort of sitting at the screen, watching the price, making decisions and so on. But that's just not the reality. The, the fuel buying aspect, and in particular, the term contracting aspect of the fuel buyer's job is a relatively minor part of it. 
So for all of those reasons, Andrew, I think that it's going to be quiet on that front, most likely for the rest of this year. And we'll start to see term contracting, I expect, off a firmer spot price base starting next year. And, you know, I, I, I perhaps I'm a little bit pessimistic here, but I think it's probably going to be well into next year before we see the term contracting cycle really pick up with gusto. And of course, if that is the case, and on the one hand, I'm perhaps being a little bit pessimistic on timing, but on the other hand, in terms of what that means, the price discovery is very positive because by then there won't be a lot of buffer available to utilities, either in terms of time before they need to lock in contracts or available inventory that they've got in the discretionary category. So that choice that I talked about before, where they might be able to draw down inventory for a bit longer rather than trying to secure pounds at the current pricing level, that equation will, for most utilities, have evaporated by then. I'm in the camp of 2022. Um, maybe the second half of 2021, we might see some activity. I don't, I don't think we're going to really get moving until 2022, but uh, I hope I'm wrong. Uh, but if not, we're okay with that time frame as well. Um, on the U.S. here, real quick, Brandon, before we get into Bannerman stuff, if the U.S. gets this uranium reserve and it gets started, and let's say it starts getting filled in 2022, um, assuming it gets even past a potential administrative change, president change in the U.S., if utilities get caught short in the years after 2022, do you see that the, there is a material impact on using such a reserve? on the actual term contracting rounds. I don't think the math supports that concern, but what are your thoughts on that? Well, my thoughts are that that's actually not what the reserve is for. Uh, it's not for buffering commercial decisions by utilities. If we had a world where the uranium just simply wasn't available at, call it $100 a pound, well, maybe that's where the reserve could be drawn upon to smooth the electricity supplies. Uh, but really, it's a strategic reserve. It's, it's there for the strategic resiliency of the United States. <clears throat> and as we stand today, that strategic resiliency only sits at about seven reloads. So it can withstand perhaps some shipping disruption or uh, something in that order, but it doesn't give genuine strategic resiliency if there was a, let's say, a geopolitical shutdown of significant uranium availability over a prolonged period of time. So that, I think, is a justifiable purpose for the uranium reserve, and, and that's why I think over time, regardless of which administration we have, there's a good argument for it being implemented, rather than being used as a commercial lever to perhaps soften the buying decisions of utilities and the outcomes from those decisions. It's not important or, or I guess core to the, the main market thesis for uranium and, and how things are going to play out on the demand side and, of course, the supply problems that we have. Well, let's move on. Let's talk uh, Bannerman. Recently, just about a week ago, you guys came out with a new scoping study for a reduced scale project. Why don't you just overview that for the audience? Look, we're really excited with the numbers that we've put out, Andrew. What we did is, for someone who hasn't looked at Bannerman before, until recently we were solely focused on a very large-scale mining development in Namibia, our Itango project. We started work on that back in 2006, 
scoping study 2007, PFS in 2009, DFS in 2012. We optimised that in 2015 and then built a demonstration plant that we operated for three years. Um, environmental approvals obtained in 2012 and 2010. And uh, it was a very advanced, very large project. And it still is. That project had a throughput so through the processing plant, we would be pushing 20 million tonnes per annum. So just to give you a, a, an idea of the sheer volume of the undertaking. And we would produce 7.2 million pounds per annum, which is enough uranium to uh, fuel about 17 nuclear power plants. So at that scale, the Tango is a real player and one of the very largest development projects out there. Now, that project has a place, it has a place particularly as we start to see 2025 deficits open up that I referred to before and as we start to see the systemic depletion of this uranium supply base that exists and will exist in the latter part of this decade. But we decided about a year ago that we really needed to understand where we could reduce development hurdles and in particular, the amount of capex required. Because that Tango project at that scale is such a giant, it required a large amount of capex, 800 million US. And as, as I've said in the various interviews and I've probably said on your show, Andrew, uh, in the context of the capital required to build those 17 nuclear reactors that this scale project can supply, that's not a big deal. But in the context of a junior who's in a beaten up bear market sector, with a current market cap at the moment in US dollars of about 25 million. That's a big number and it's a discouraging number for investors. So we needed to reduce that development hurdle and anything else we could um, do. Uh, so what we've done is reduce that throughput from 20 million pounds down to 8 million pounds. So 60% reduction in throughput. But because we've operated within a pitch shell that has slightly elevated grade. The grade is up 19%. So that gives us back quite a bit of that production. And we'll produce over a similar mine line, about 3.5, slightly over three and a half million pounds per annum. So it's still a big project. It's still one of the largest development projects that can produce pounds this decade. But the capital impact has been dramatic. We've taken that number from down from 793 million down to 254 million. Uh, so that's a greater than proportion reduction in capital. And we've also taken 250 million out of the sustaining capital, which makes a big difference to our all-in sustaining cost, uh, which is the, the only really honest measure of cost in this industry. Uh, now, what I'm really pleased about with this is Quite often when you do, when you seek to reduce capital, there's a few levers where you can trade, trade off capital for operating costs. Uh, and so you might produce a smaller capital number, but your operating cost goes up. So we haven't needed to do that, not at a global level. Our operating costs have come down a little bit to $37 a pound as a cash cost, but our all-in sustaining cost has come down quite a bit to $40.90. So the all-in sustaining costs have come down that level. And also our break-even, which is defined as uh, basically zero profit. So your cash cost, your capital cost, and 
a return on that capital of 8%. Our break-even has come down from $52 a pound to about $46 a pound. So that's had a good effect on the economics at a $65 assumed uranium price. Uh, we've got a post-tax NPV of 212 million US dollars. And as I say, that compared to the current market capitalization of about 25. And uh, the IRR, the internal rate of return, sits at um, slightly over 21%. So solid economics at a $65 uranium price. The other thing that this scoping study does and the, the way that we've reimagined this project is it gives us many more financing options. A conventional financing route is, first of all, it, it's just a lot more achievable for a single focus asset company and a listed junior. But also, at, at a smaller size, but still very significant at three and a half million pounds, there's a greater array of partners that we could look to. Uh, at the monster size of 7.2 million pounds, you know, we had a number of different sovereigns and a few utilities who could absorb and digest that science. But at three and a half million pounds, that universe of potential partners who could either help us in an offtake or financing or some other way has expanded probably fourfold. The big project's still there. So that's still attractive to the partners that, uh, that were attracted to that scale and what it can do for a nuclear power program. But we've now got a more viable project at a smaller scale with much lower development hurdles. Go back through the methodology, the thinking with regards to the, the feasibility studies, Brandon. You guys have already done a series on the larger project, a series of you know the studies. Why not just optimize that study that already exists versus coming back and starting over with the scoping? Is, is it a re regulatory requirement or what's the deal? Look, it's a good question because we have optimized many of those aspects. So if we were to put out a, a new DFS on the 20 million pound project, the numbers would be better because of some of the wins that we've had. And those wins have been incorporated into the scoping study. The difficulty is that to put out a new DFS at 20 million pounds, it's quite an expensive exercise. Uh, we've got to glue together all of the various wins that we've had. We then need to go to procurement to get refreshed numbers on that. And then from, as you point out, from a regulatory um, perspective, particularly if we're gonna put out an NI43101, um, there's a couple of hundred thousand dollars worth of um, pure cost, just uh, basically dressing that up and putting it out. And we hadn't done that to date because if we did a new DFS, it's got the risk of becoming stale again. And also when you go to procure from suppliers, you know, reagents, mining equipment, all of those sorts of things, you, you need quotes to do a DFS at a definitive level. If you do that procurement before you're ready to finance, those suppliers, they figure out pretty quickly that they're actually just negotiating against themselves. You know, you get a big engineering firm, we were using wood, they go out and the, the suppliers, they say, you know, if we give wood our keenest possible price for Bannerman, all they're gonna do is put that in their database and use that against us on the next project. Whereas when you're ready to finance and you've got a DFS that's being 
delivered shortly ahead of a market that understands you're going to build, that's when the suppliers go, well, you know, if, if our price is the best, then we're, we've got the pound seat here for being contracted in the next few months for this job. So we'd better put our best foot forward. Um, so that answers the first part of your question, Andrew, about you know why we didn't just optimise those numbers. Um, the second part is we wanted to produce an alternative streamlined project. It's an alternative, it's not a replacement. The, the DFS on 20 million tonnes per annum and 7.2 million pounds per annum of production, that's still there. All of the drilling, all of the metallurgy, all of the processing work, all of the pilot plant work, that's still entirely valid. And because the environmental approvals remain in place for that project, we've got that available if the market turns in the way that we'd all hope it would. But if it doesn't, we need a project that's got lower production hurdles, lower capital hurdles, um, a better financial uh, set of numbers at a reduced uranium price. So I'd like to think that we've now got a bet both ways. We've got a project that's solid, putting out very good financial numbers at $65, and then we've got a giant project that offers extraordinary leverage. And I guess what we'll be doing is we'll be trying to have our cake and eat it as well, because there's, in principle, there's very good potential to get into production at the lowest scale and then ramp up. So we could add another production circuit, so we could increase or double or even more the production once we're in business. And the work that we've done so far on that suggests that that decision would need to be made in about year five of the mine life. Uh, we could produce for three, four, five years and then make a decision, do we want to expand our production potentially all the way up to that 20 million pounds, uh, or do we want to continue on at the current production level? So it gives us a, a large number of options that you don't often see with a large scale project. And I think that's going to start putting us into a, into a pretty special space in this sector. And on the future expansion, Brandon, what do you see as far as when and what conditions would be considered to possibly scale up to the full 7 million pounds per year in the future? Would that be obviously a price point? Would it be considered at 2025 onward? Um, what's the internal thought process on when that decision would be made? Yeah, look, it's going to be priced. It's going to be fairly straightforward. Is there enough market tension, as we expect there would be, that we can write enough contracts to finance the expansion? Uh, what will be different is that we'll already be in business. That decision point would probably start from about 2028. And if you look at the World Nuclear Association's supply-demand numbers, I mean, that gap, that deficit really expands from 2028 without a lot of solutions, particularly if there's a delay in permitting in the Athabasca, which many people believe will take place. So that's kind of perfect timing for making that decision. And if the utilities really need those pounds, they'll pay what's required. But we're an operating business at that point with all of those utility relationships, with contracts in place with many of them. And uh, history would tell us from, say, the Rossing uranium mine, when they've had to do big expansions and big cutbacks, uh, quite famously, they went to a, a couple of larger utilities and they just said simply, this is the price that we need for this expansion. Will you give us contracts or are you happy for us to uh, run down our production and lose that 
those pounds out of the market and Rossing continued into business and, uh, with that extension because the utility said, no, we need those pounds. We want those pounds in the market and we'll give you that price. The disclosed capex that you guys had there, you had about, if I recall, about 73 million US per 1 million pound plant production um, under the smaller scale project. Do you see that that number is pretty accurate or is it a little bit optimistic? What's your thoughts on coming up with that number? First thing that everyone understands that this is a scoping study. It is confined particularly on the plant within a plus minus 30% compared to a DFS or a definitive study which is confined to plus minus 15%. So I guess I need to throw that out as a disclaimer on everything that I say. It, having said that, this is a scoping study that is a reassembly of data that has already been garnered to a definitive level. So in many cases, scoping study is kind of guesswork. You know, you've, you've only just completed some resource drilling and you're imagining what a project might look like, but knowing that you've still got to do PFS and then DFS to see where those numbers fall. But here we've got a huge database of information that's really solid and done to a definitive level and done very well technically that we can put on. That gives us that, an enhanced level of confidence in this doping study. Um, so I don't think the, the numbers are optimistic. They're certainly not um, presented to be optimistic. We're in this business for the long haul and this isn't about putting numbers out to investors and shareholders to get the next capital raise away, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we want to put together a PFS We'd like to improve those numbers, but this isn't about getting the lowest numbers that you can deliver with a straight face here. This is about putting out numbers that we think are as accurate as we can possibly get them and as representative. And there's many examples, Andrew, where we've actually gone quite conservative on the numbers. Um, we've got uh, some really good processing results that have been done in six and seven metre columns, but because they haven't been done in our demonstration plant, we're not going to use them. Uh, that's, that's a win that we push forward to the PFS. So that uh, capital intensity, um, so we think about it as how many dollars do you need to put in as upfront capital for every pound that you produce. Um, so that's $71 a pound or 71 million for every million pounds of ongoing production over a 14 year mine life. Uh, for conventional mining, that's very good and it's very competitive and really uh, the only projects around the world of any scale that can compete with that uh, are brownfield projects that can deliver pounds into this decade. So we are starting to find ourselves in a nice little, in a nice little zone in this sector where we're quite unique. Big production still, uh, capability to produce into this next cycle because we've got environmental permitting and we're a very favourable jurisdiction in Namibia and a capital that is competitive and towards the lower end in terms of intensity. How about the uh, all-in-sustaining costs, Brandon, that you guys have mentioned in the study? Maybe you can help investors out with just what they should maybe t try to, to get their head around as far as the outside G&A costs at Bannerman being a production company at that point. So the G&A and the expiration and all the other corporate activities that occur at the same time, what do you figure that be per pound in addition to the all-in sustaining costs? 
Yeah, so you need to allow something for GNA, of course. Um, one of the tricks of the trade that we have not done consistent with our credible and conservative approach is we haven't pushed marketing costs and that sort of thing into the GNA. So we've allowed a dollar ten per pound for those types of costs, the cost of dealing with contracting and so on with utilities and running a marketing arm to the organisation. So um, that's that's got the potential to be a big GNA cost that you don't need to add to those numbers. We've got an ethos, as I think you understand well, Andrew, of running things very tight. Uh, for the last four years, while I've been in this role, it's been extremely disciplined. Um, to give you listeners an example, and if I talk in US dollars for a moment, our total spend over the last 12 months um, to June 30 was just under one and a half million US dollars. That's everything. That, in, that includes all of the work that we've done on the project. We've run the uh, pilot plant during that period to produce data for taking our nanofiltration up to a definitive level. Uh, but we've done the scoping study within that. So we are very, very disciplined and very tight on cost. And that's an ethos that absolutely has to continue into the future. And there's no reason to change that. Um, listing costs on ASX are, are probably a bit less than TSX. There's, there's, a, there's less on cost. There's less compulsory costs associated with investor relations and so on. Um, we've achieved really good value out of building a profile via social media and YouTube and other means like that, um, rather than spending a lot of time and money at conferences and traveling and that type of thing. So we like to think that going forward, that G&A cost can be relatively contained. And uh, if we were a single asset company still then, which is an if, but if we were, our corporate costs need to be substantially more than what they have been, you know, running at say a couple of million US dollars a year. How about the uh, other efficiencies as you guys move down the path of the new reduced scale pre-feasibility study you guys will have out um, sometime first half next year? Uh, any other efficiencies that you guys are focusing in on or do you see that the scoping study pretty much best represents what you guys are, are going to obtain? Yeah, thanks, Andrew. Um, it, it's a good point because there are a couple of wins that we want to explore in the PFS. Um, the first one is some of the processing numbers that I alluded to before. We've, we've consistently established through our demonstration plant, through more than three years of test work there, that we can achieve a recovery in the early 90s, about 93%. Now, in the DFS, uh, that was discounted in a scalar, uh, and we ended up producing a, um, a recovery or a processing yield of about 87.8%, which we've carried forward into the scoping study. But we'd like to think that we can improve that number. And the thing about processing numbers and recovery is it goes straight to your bottom line. So there's potential for a win there. The other one is, our acid consumption. Acid is, like most mines, our number one reagent cost. Uh, we've done some great work with nanofiltration, recovering and scavenging acid and getting that right down. And in column work, we've been able to achieve a, an acid consumption of about 14 kilograms per tonne. Now, that was done in columns, whereas we've got crib work 
that was done a couple of years ago at a definitive level um, that's higher than that. It's, uh, it's over 16 kilograms a tonne. We took the decision that whilst a scoping study could certainly go with column work, and often it goes with less, uh, because we had definitive level numbers, we should use them instead rather than taking a, a more aggressive approach. So we're looking to um, take that up the path, if you like, in terms of processing uh, confidence. And we think that there's a good win to be had there. They're just a couple of examples. There's a few other things that we're working on. We're looking constantly at aspects in the mining cost that can be reduced. Uh, the mining cost numbers that we're going with at $2.56 per tonne is our biggest single cost. So anything we can improve on mining cost goes straight to the numbers. And the nice thing with this scoping study is we don't need to spend money or accept any risk on the key issues of resource, um, metallurgy and environmental. Um, that work's all been done. And other than optimising with hopefully some numbers benefits, we don't need to invest in that at all. And Brandon, when we talk about you know the different offtake options and and these uh, you know potential deals with utilities, where are you at as far as you know what you think is going to be maybe the ideal strategy, the next steps in advancing those relationships? What would you say at this point as far as how those relations are being progressed with utilities at this point, and when do you see that that you are going to press hard to try to obtain a deal? Well, there's two things that could lead us to, let's say, becoming more direct in our relationship with utilities and starting to make sales calls. And the first one is obviously if the market really increases and tension firms up and the utilities really need the power. Well, we want to obviously at that point reassure them that we're going to be there for them and explain to them in terms that they can understand uh, when we can come into production and what we're going to need for that in terms of price support. Um, now, if we get to a DFS on the a Tango 8 size project, okay, well, the next progression is marketing. And if the utilities haven't started coming to us to say we need pounds from you, then we'll start going to them and saying these pounds will be available, but this is what we're going to need to get into production. The, the thing, the approach that we've taken, Andrew, is Utilities are busy people. Um, they've got a lot on their plate, the utility fuel buyers. And the feedback that I've had overwhelmingly from them is they don't want to be fielding pesky sales calls until we've got something to sell. And we took that on board. But we've been fortunate in that I've got good, strong collegiate relationships with many, probably most of the utilities through the work that I've been doing in this sector and in the industry. Um, I've got quite a deep involvement in World Nuclear Association now. Um, you know that I'm involved in a number of the working group committees there and I chair one of the more important ones. And so you end up developing much more sustained, productive relationships with utility fuel buyers when you're sitting across the table with them. And you know, most times from one conference to the next, there's only a five minute update they really need. And, and so rather than wasting 45 minutes of their time having a coffee and sitting down and talking about the market to produce that five minutes of necessary information, I can, I can achieve that over a coffee break or over a beer, something like that. So that's the approach that we've taken. And, and as I say, I mean, it's, it's appreciated. 
they don't particularly enjoy having a bunch of uranium genius uh, absorbing their time saying, look, in five, five years' time, we reckon we'll be there for you. Right. Yeah, good points. Now, how about, you know, you, we've just back kind of to a similar topic, I guess, here with potential clients and partners, et cetera, Brandon. You've indicated in past discussions that China may be a possible partner uh, or investor through optake arrangements, debt finance partner for the Bannerman shareholders. Are you concerned with potential ethics of partnering with potential state-backed enterprises that might endorse, you know, things like freedom suppressions and maybe through most vehicles seem to want to control companies as we've seen with prior and current examples? How do you weigh the business success decisions with that of ensuring that any deal structure puts the shareholders and the company assets protections first? You know, that assumes that the uh, off-taker doesn't become a major shareholder. How do you kind of juggle these concerns, Brandon? I'm sure that they've crossed your mind when you're structuring a deal. Look, it's a really good point because ESG or CSR or corporate responsibility factors are very, very important in the current um, investor market. And they're only going to become more important. And we start with an inherent advantage. It's not always recognized. But in the uranium sector, we start with the huge advantage that we can offer through nuclear utilities clean baseload power that's emissions free and has a waste that can be contained, localised and controlled. So we're already in a position that should be recognised as kind of top of the class ESG. But it's really crucial that the rest of our work is at that level and Bannerman's always been aware of that. Uh, even when I first worked with the company back in 2009, we had a board that was acutely aware that if you didn't tick, not only tick, if you didn't excel in all of those CSR and corporate social responsibility, environmental governance boxes, then you, you're losing a strategic opportunity. And, you know, there's, uh, there's a number of utilities, particularly the utilities up in Sweden and Finland, they insist on that. Their communities say, we want uranium running our reactors that uh, ticks all of those boxes. And for example, some of the Swedish utilities would come down to Namibia every year and do a social assessment there. They wanted to make sure that they could go back and say to their customers, we've been down there, we've seen the way that, for example, Rossing is extracting its uranium. They're doing it responsibly. The community's really happy with it. They're taking all of the right environmental measures. And so we're comfortable contracting with them. So this ESG dynamic is really important, really important. And anyone who thinks that they can do lip service to it, you know, they're, they're going to be found out. They're going to be found out, at least by the utilities and probably over time with the market. And I'm sure you've spent a lot of time thinking about this, Andrew, but the amount of money that's available to high quality ESG investment is huge. As an industry, we've got some work to do to make sure that uh, nuclear power and uranium isn't discriminated against. So far, it's managing to stay off most restriction lists uh, when you look at uh, the way that ESG and green investing is being formulated, but it's not getting the, the free kick that say renewables is. So there's work that the industry needs to do, but there's also work that companies need to do to be absolutely certain that they are regarded as leaders in this field. And, you know, I could talk on and on and on about how much emphasis and focus Bannerman's put into that. 
But to answer your question, you know, those, those decisions and those aspects always need to be weighed with a partnership. But it needs to be weighed in total. If you were to use any developing nation, whether it's China, India, or anywhere else, you've got to ask yourself the question, what is the in total benefit here? Uh, if you are providing a clean energy source that's going to displace coal, potentially offer an alternative to a highly destructive hydropower dam, to a utility that is exercising the right ESG fundamentals and has its heart in the right place, is it really right to get caught up in what the global political views are? You know, they're difficult decisions. We haven't had to answer those. But there's no one-size-fits-all answer to this debate. You do need to look at it from what's your ultimate impact on the planet going to be. In general, I'm really passionate about what impact we can have as Bannerman and the amount of, for example, dirty coal that we can displace in developing nations. Uh, but those things that you've highlighted, they're always a consideration. It's tough to to navigate those because I think it's also not just necessarily on a country basis, but it could be also on an entity basis. And I think we've seen that with, there's more potential for other clients, not necessarily in China, if that's not where someone wants to go, but also just to mix that relationship with others. Now we have potential clients in the Middle East, have clients in India, we have clients in other nations that are emerging. And so I think that that's positive. And it's tough because we've seen kind of mixed examples, Brandon, where you have companies that have not been successful with uh, dealing with the Chinese in the uranium space, and also outside of that in base metals and precious metals. And then we've also seen, I guess, a current example, um, Ivanhoe Mines, Robert Friedland um, dealing with their assets in Africa. They're working with uh, two different Chinese partners and they don't have any problems all by also managing the governments there, which are can be difficult. I think it matters uh, a lot of the relationship, uh, terms of deal and, and what the goals are. but uh, certainly be some interesting stuff to ponder as uh, deals get done. And I think um, you comment about what the goals are is important as well. So there's a lot of difficult geopolitics at the moment, particularly between the US, China and Russia. And as a company, you kind of need to try and stay under that. Uh, you need to take from it what's valid to your industry. But if you start making strategic decisions based on uh, what you're reading in the US media or the Russian media or the Chinese media, you're not really doing the right thing for the shareholders or the planet. But in terms of goals, you know, it's been my observation that the Russian utilities, the Rosatom, and all three of the Chinese utilities, CNNC, CGN, and SPIC, their goals are exactly what you would want them to be. They, as best as they possibly can, they are implementing the sort of ESG standards that you would expect of a first world um, commercial operation. And I really mean that. Um, you look at what some of the uh, environmental work that Rod Adams doing, it's absolutely outstanding. And it's, it makes sense for all of the reasons that I've just described. These are clever companies. They're big companies. They're, they've attracted some of the foremost talent in very big countries. And of course, they're going to read the writing on the wall on all of this. They fully understand that both for commercial and, and I suspect also for moral reasons, they need to be absolutely top of the class on ESG. 
And sure, there's always cultural issues and language issues and that sort of thing. So sometimes the implementation can be improved and we do see a little bit of that in Namibia and there's a bit of criticism in Namibia. Some of it's probably fair, some of it's unfair, but that's not the point. The point is what you said, the goals are aligned. So, you know, prima facie, those goals of those utilities from those countries, putting to one side all of the geopolitics, those goals are consistent with our goals. I think it can be managed, but it's, it'll be tough depending on what who you're dealing with and, of course, what the situation of the company is at the time. It's a tough process, so I, I wish you luck as, as you guys enter into that phase. I, I think that that will eventually come for the company. Let's talk a little bit more about the shareholder roster for a moment, uh, strategic shareholders. Any info and progress you can share with us on bolstering the shareholder roster with more strategics, any strategic you'd like to mention that has arrived at Bannerman, um, any thoughts on that side? Yeah, look, first of all, I'm really comfortable with where the register is at the moment. Our largest shareholder, Trebekah, through their specialist uranium fund, they hold 9% roughly. Um, very comfortable with that as a single largest shareholder. It's not a strategic shareholder. They're not sitting on the register as part of a uh, a, an agenda. They're there as a pure investor. Board and management have got about 10%, which also uh, I think is appropriate and ideal. And then you've got specific uranium funds at roughly 13% and then other institutions at about 22%. So for a micro cap, we've got a heavy institutional component when you add that 22, that 13 and that 9. An appropriate level of board and management ownership and then also, you know, good spread in terms of retail and uh, high net worth type investors. And we're starting to see that in the liquidity. I'm, I'm very happy with what we've been able to do for liquidity over the journey. Um, you know, the, the question about strategics, a lot of companies like to profile the value of their strategic investors. And a lot of times, and I'm not only talking about uranium here, I'm talking about other sectors as well. A lot of times when I look at that, I say, look, yeah, I can understand the bragging rights that you're getting here because shareholder XYZ is worth this much or they've achieved this much or they've got this amount of production. But what optionality are you really giving up by bringing on that strategic or allowing them on? And where does that fit into your overall strategy? And, I, and if a company can't answer those two questions, then I start to wonder if they've been sucker punched. So we don't have, at the moment, and we don't have plans to introduce a strategic investor unless we can answer those two questions. So as I say, I'm really happy with where the register's evolved. And for a 25 million US market cap company, uh, I'm delighted with the names that are on our register. And obviously we're hoping to improve that further and get more institutional buy-in as we increase our market cap and increase our liquidity and become available to more investment mandates. Fair enough. No, that yeah. sounds good. And where are you currently, Brandon, with your own share ownership at this point? And will you be increasing that share ownership through market purchases and potential future financings? You know, again, it's interesting. There's there's two aspects to that. Look, the first one is I have been buying in market. Um, there was a release put out this morning about that. And that's the first time for an extended period that I've been able to buy in market. You know, the Managing Director and CEO, we've got very, very strict securities laws in Australia. Um, it, you, you look at uh, TSX and the 
insider buying is like the key criteria for people. Well, the word insider is so linked in Australia to insider trading that that word sends a shiver up the spine of most people in this market. It's so because of the work that we've been doing and because these scoping study numbers are just so much of an improvement with our previous numbers in 2015, I haven't been able to be in the market. And there's been times I can tell you when, when the GSP, uh, when the um, COVID route hit our company as well as everyone else, uh, it was really painful to see those share prices and not be able to average down my own position that I've bought in at. So anyway, so that's the first point. And uh, I've got a bit more than 10 million shares in the company. So it's a big position for me. I mean, my ownership in this company is the biggest asset that I've got other than my house. So I'm very exposed to the outcome here. Um, but, you know, Andrew, there's, there's another point to this. And I sometimes see investors, particularly retail investors, being a bit one-dimensional about this whole management ownership and insider buying question. And to talk about this, you kind of need to give up a little bit about yourself personally. But if you've got a CEO who's on his second cycle, who's made a lot of money, sprinkling a few hundred grand or even a million at a register, what does that actually tell you if it's a small, insignificant part of their wealth versus somebody, and I'd include myself in this category, who's putting money that is being redirected from some other very tangible aspects of their lifestyle or their family's lifestyle or their family's financial security onto a market to supplement what is some, some genuine financial hunger to make a success. And, you know, the, the, the personal part of this, Andrew, is I divided my, um, my career into the kind of the, the standard learn, earn and return type model. Um, although rather than approaching it to life, I've approached it to my career. And I made that decision when I was at university, early in university, that that's exactly what I wanted to do. And I've only recently come out of the learning phase. And that learning phase involves two degrees, a couple of postgraduate um, qualifications, uh, working as a lawyer for a number of years, uh, working in private equity, working in funds management, um, and, and deliberately choosing those pathways to develop the best possible skill base that I thought I would need to go into that second phase as an entrepreneur. And it was very deliberate and very disciplined, I might add. So if you look at, uh, for example, my legal career, um, I left that career at the age of 32 on the brink of partnership. And partnership in the type of firm that I was in uh, basically meant a million dollars a year as your partner draw. That's what it had been for the last several years. And you had to climb the ladder a little bit to get into that full equity position, but uh, it was well in my sight. So I had to really go back to what am I here for? I'm here to learn. Have I learned enough? No, because I haven't understood these other aspects of commerce. Now I'm in that earning phase, but because of those types of decisions, you know, I didn't build up enough of a capital base to be able to throw a few hundred grand at the market nonchalantly like, like some of my peers who made money in the last cycle or made money on other commodities and so on. So I guess, you know, the question for some of the investors out there who are um, 
critical of the numbers without looking at a more holistic context is do you want a CEO who's devoted 20 years of their career to building the best mix of skills and still is demonstrably financially hungry and determined for shareholders and their own family to make a huge success? Um, or do you want somebody who's got financial firepower, but perhaps that hunger's been satiated several years ago? And I think that's a valid question. The financial firepower, of course, that's got a value. But what do you really need and what do you want out of your CEO? 100% agreed. And I think it goes both ways. And people have to weigh the both sides of that scenario. And I agree, it should be based on, you know, Brandon, as a percentage of your net worth, how much do you have in the uranium sector? How much do you have vested in Bannerman? I could certainly say that from a personal standpoint here, um, I would say that's nearly 50% or a little over 50% of my en entire investable portfolio is in the uranium thesis because I have done enough work to justify that size of a position fully based on my understanding of the sector and my determined outcome for the sector. And of course, the only thing that, that plays into that is really the win question. I think that that makes complete sense and you bring up a good point and I, I would just caution the audience to consider that. Um, when they look at these things and to even ask management about that that question. I, I think that that makes a lot of sense. Well, let's talk uh, a little bit more about other uranium equity holdings. Brandon, do you have uh, any other uranium investments besides Bannerman? Yes, I do. Yeah, I, I have a portfolio of uranium investments. I'm an all-in believer in this sector. <laughs> okay. I probably won't twist your arm to, to try to share a name or two, but uh, how about listings? You know, I think the time will come when Bannerman is in a position and the market is in a position where it would justify to look at, and you mentioned uh, TSX earlier, to look at potentially some kind of a, you know, supplemental main listing besides OTC in the U.S. What would be a decision for that? Uh, what point in the market would you do that? And what exchange would you prefer? Yeah, well, there's a bit of back to the future in that, you know, Andrew, because we were listed on TSX, and one of the things that I've done on my watch is uh, come off the TSX. Uh, so we're no longer registered up there, and we're no longer a, um, a reporting entity on the TSX. And we did that because of the cost. Uh, it really was a big draw on our corporate spend, and we weren't getting a lot of benefit for that. And particularly where the different bosses around the world have become more dynamic. So if you look at the OTC markets and, uh, you know, listeners should understand that our decision to, to elevate our listing to QB status had a lot to do with our discussions a couple of years ago in Adelaide, Andrew. Um, so we took that feedback on board and we went through that process of getting QB listing to make us more available to investors in North America and Europe. And for a lot of investors, it's, it's very available. It's very uh, easy once they just know how and set it up the right way. So there's a bit of, I would sooner invest in ensuring a broader part of the audience understands how to access Bannerman through the OTC markets and ensure that there's liquidity in that market than I would going back to the TSX. No, that sounds great. And a QX listing would make some sense. If you guys see the benefit, I understand it. It has some additional benefits and doesn't have too much more of a cost. 
I'm a big fan of the New York Stock Exchange. The Amex sub exchange there is is a pretty good option when the timing's right. Not now, but certainly when the timing's right and you're in a rising market. Um, I think the good old New York Stock Exchange is, it does a lot of wonders for Australian companies when the time is right, of course. But just point the audience to, again, if, if you're struggling to get access to Australia, if you're in North America and you're having a tough time getting access to Australia, look at your broker because there are brokers. If you're in the U.S. or in Canada, there are good brokers that get you easy access to the ASX. So you just need to do a little bit of work there. Get the right broker to get started. And then if that doesn't work, then, of course, you can always revert back to the OTC if that's a better option for you. Brandon, let's talk plans 18 months out. Will you need to raise capital during this time frame coming up? And what are the major objectives over the next 18 months? So we've got a, a fairly well-defined 18 months now. Uh, we think it'll take about, uh, by, by mid-next year, we'll have a PFS out. So nine to 12 months on the PFS. Uh, it's not particularly expensive for us. We don't, we haven't appointed the consultant formally yet, so we don't quite have an exact number, and we'll be we'll be taking that to the market when we do. Um, but I reckon we'll we'll be at about a million Australian dollars to get a PFS done, which is absolutely outstanding for a project of this size. But of course, that's because we don't need to do any resource drilling and. Okay don't need to do the metallurgy work and we don't need to do the environmental work that would normally accompany this phase of a development process. Um, and from there, assuming that uh, the numbers are all good, which we feel confident about, we'd then be moving straight on to a DFS. And we think at this stage, as best as we can judge that type of thing, that a DFS would take a similar amount of time, nine to 12 months. Um, harder to pinpoint how much a DFS would cost. But again, there's all of those pieces that have already been done. So it's going to be far more efficient than you would normally expect. What does that do for our cash balance? Well, as I said before, now, now I'll switch to Australian dollars. Uh, we, uh, we, at the end of June, we had 4.2 million Australian dollars or 3 million US. Um, last year, our cash burn was, uh, under 2.1 million Australian dollars or one and a half million US. And that included all the project work that we're doing. So if you were to deduct, call it a million Australian dollars for the PFS, you can see that we've still got a lot of runway beyond the end of next year if need be. Now, raising capital is always a, a risk question, isn't it? You're weighing up the availability to capital at a price that you like compared to what you can do uh, in terms of improving the register and what you can do de-risking the company financially. And we have a really genuinely nuanced view of all of that. Um, we haven't raised capital for more than two years. So when we raise, we raise well and we raise effectively, you know, and we raised at a level well above of where we're trading at the moment. So the answer is we don't need to raise capital in that time frame. And given what you and I both shared in terms of our views on when the contracting cycle is likely to start up. You know, I think that's a good thing. I think it's a, it puts me in a really strong position to have that cash balance and have that runway in front of us and have the, uh, the bank balance to continue moving forward with the PFS. I agree. And I, I like the raise capital over a period of time instead of this, you know, issue new equity every quarter or every six months, like a lot of companies do. 
I think it makes a lot more sense to to let that work itself out and work up a, a time. I like the the, the two-year time frame on capital raises. I think that is much more prudent and much more smart way to approach it. Um, unless there's certain you know events with the company and events with the market that justify modifying that strategy. Brandon, wrapping up here, why should investors take a stake in Bannerman now? Um, for new investors and maybe even existing investors who want to add to their position at this uh, price level, what would you say to potential investors now? The first point is we're globally significant at three and a half million pounds. And with that very special built-in option of that further expansion scalability, you know, potentially up to 7.2 million pounds. The numbers are good. We've got robust economics and low hurdles for development. The thing that we haven't talked about today is Namibia is a superb operating jurisdiction. And what comes with that is um, many, many decades of uranium export, excellent infrastructure, a good government understanding of uranium and all of those issues. And through that, we've been able to obtain environmental approvals with strong community and government support. It's something we didn't touch on is our project of low technical risk through, first of all, all of the definitive study work we've done, but also the demonstration plant that we ran for three years. So it's a low technical risk project. And what we've got now to offer investors is a really streamlined development path. And we see this aligning really well with the supply deficits that are opening up in a substantial way from 2024, 2025. So we've got a development path that dovetails into the point in this market cycle when we think things will get very interesting for investors. And we've got producible pounds into the next cycle. We've got environmental approval. We're in a supportive politi political and community environment. And we've got a project that's got that enhanced pathway because of all of the work that's been done already. Completely back up your comments about Namibia as a jurisdiction. I think that still today, a lot of people overlook that jurisdiction when in fact, it's in our view, very, very or equal to Western jurisdictions uh, for uranium as well. So fantastic country. And Brandon, how about uh, investors who want to reach out to you for more information? Well, I certainly welcome all the contact. There's a couple of different ways. Um, so I'm on Twitter. Uh, Brandon underscore Munro is my Twitter handle, and there's also a company Twitter account at Bannerman Red. Uh, that's always a good place. Uh, or you can come through to probably the best way is to go through to my PA rather than me, because you'll get a quicker turnaround. Um, but that's info at bannermanresources.com.au. Uh, you can contact us through the website, and it's well worth having a look at the website, www.bannermanresources.com. And I'm on, on LinkedIn, and always happy to you know learn from people and hear from people on LinkedIn. So I'd say they'd be the best, Andrew. Well, Brandon, I really appreciate you coming on and chatting and updating us with Bannerman, uh, talking about this uh, new scoping study and the path forward at Bannerman. Looking forward to following the company progress, and really appreciate you taking the time with us. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. It's great to be on the show again and love what you're doing for the sector and for investors. Thanks, Andrew.